So please let yourself come back in and find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease. I know that for those of you who were here last week, that uh, Dr. Tintin from Burma came and talked in her way about um, the practice that comes from this tradition of the elders um, and living a a life of uh, attention and care. This evening I'd like to continue with the theme of mindfulness. Um, Probably the first part of that theme, we may continue with it for a couple of more Mondays in the next few weeks. Um, But in particular, the training of mindfulness um, that begins with one's own body and mind and heart. And then, of course, there's the training of extending that into the interactions and conversations and work and love of our life. The most central invitation in Buddhist practice um, is the invitation uh, to awareness. The word Buddha means one who is awake. My friend said the Buddha, there is a most wonderful way for living beings to realize purification, to overcome directly grief and sorrow, to end pain and anxiety and travel the true path and realize freedom or liberation. And this is the establishment of awareness or mindfulness. There are four establishments in this text. A practitioner remains established in awareness of the body in the body, of the feelings in the feelings, aware of all the feelings, of the mind in the mind, and of the laws that govern body and heart and mind and the world around us. By being aware in this way, beginning simply with breath and body standing and moving and sitting, and the feelings and thoughts that arise, one, by practicing this, is invited to discover what the Buddha discovered, the possibility of liberation or freedom. I've just come back from the 10-day retreat in Yucca Valley, which is a wonderful place with this huge, vast desert, huge, vast sky to practice. It was um, a good retreat, as they usually are, but it was also very cold. It snowed and the wind blowed and it was like Arctic. It was, it's up at about, yeah, Joshua Tree is up at about 4,000 feet. And it was freezing cold. And somehow the cold seemed to drive people inward in the retreat. So in some way they did it even more deeply because there was no entertainment outside, basically. And in the course of the retreat, some people had the opening of their body, kinds of healing that took place. For some, there were deep emotional openings of wounds or grief or love or longing and how to work with that. For some, there was new understandings in the mind of the way the mind gets caught and the freedom that comes when one sees those patterns of mind. 
For some, not much happened. And then at some point, they opened their eyes and realized that they were living in a really different way. Their eyes were bright and their attention to things was clear. And the invitation of this retreat, of these 10 days of mindfulness, was to see things clearly and let go of the small sense of self that we are lost in often, the body of fear, and instead discover that one can awaken to a freedom in any moment. Mindfulness is the gateway to this freedom or this awakening. Um, And what it is in the simplest way is that quality or capacity that we know very well to be present with what is occurring just now in this moment without judging or wanting or resisting, but just being with what is, as if we could bow to this, whatever it is. As Robert Frost said, anything more than the truth would be too much. So it's just this much, just this moment. My friend Sharon Salzberg, who's been a Vipassana teacher for 25 years or so, said actually it's really easy to teach insight meditation. All you have to do is ask people, were you mindful of that, whatever it was? I had great experiences on retreat, terrible experiences. I was open or closed or breathing or not or whatever it happened to be. Were you aware of that? Could you rest in this center, in this still point, just now, and notice the play of life from that place of understanding and ease. Somebody came to me during the course of this retreat and said that when she was a little girl, that um, one of the things that was true in her family, which was a somewhat neglectful family, is they never had bedtime stories. And so she came to the evening Dharma talks not so much to learn anything, but because to her, they were bedtime (coughs) stories, which she never got, and felt like they were um, kind of mm, nourishing her in a special way. So let me tell you a story, Mm, since we're here and it's evening. And it's a story from Leo Tolstoy. One day it occurred to a certain emperor that if he knew the answer to three questions, he would never stray in any difficulty. And these are the three questions he posed. What is the best time to do each thing? Who are the most important people to work with? And what is the most important thing to do at all times? And as emperors do, he issued a decree asking all the wise people in the kingdom to come to the palace and answer the question. And various people came, and one person said that in the first question, you know, what is the best time to do each thing, the king should get a book and put a schedule in it. (laughs) You know, everything, you know how that works in the Western world. But the emperor somehow didn't feel that that was the best answer. (laughs) Somebody else said that you couldn't plan in advance, that was all in vain, and that you should just remain attentive and, um, you know, put aside your pleasures and amusements and you would figure it out. Somebody else said, no, no, um, 
that you couldn't figure it out yourself. What you needed was a council of wise men and women to advise you on what was the best, the right time to do things, the right season, and the best thing to do. And so there were all kinds of answers like this. They tended to be more on the administrative side, unfortunately. Um, and even what was most important to pursue, some said science, and some said you know, agriculture, and some said religion. None of them satisfied the emperor. So he decided to go into the mountains and visit a hermit who lived way up on this mountainside and was said to be one of the sages of the kingdom. But this particular hermit had a reputation of not really liking to have anything to do with persons of wealth or power. So the emperor, being wise, disguised himself as a simple peasant, went with his attendants to the foot of the mountain and ordered them to wait for him and walked up. And when he got up after a number of hours of hiking, tired, reached the holy man's place, the old hermit was out in his garden digging the soil. And the emperor saw he was a very old man and how hard he was working. He approached him with his three questions. When is the best time to do each thing? Who are the most important people to work with? And what's the most important thing to do at all times? And the hermit listened kindly, just patted the emperor on the shoulder and continued digging, said nothing. After a while, the emperor said, you must be tired. Here, let me give you a hand. And ah, the old man sat down and the emperor began. He dug a couple of rows and then he turned to the hermit as if that was enough and asked the three questions again. But the hermit didn't answer, just kind of bowed back to him, pointed to the spade. Why don't you rest now? Let the emperor sit down, and he took his turn, and all afternoon they passed it back and forth, the emperor mostly digging, and the sun began to set. And the emperor put down the spade and said, Listen, I came here to ask you these three questions, and you haven't given me any answer. I think I'm just going to go back down. That moment, the hermit heard something, and he said, Do you hear someone running? And sure enough, a man came running out of the woods. He ran wildly, pressing his hands against a bloody wound in his side fell unconscious right in, in front of the emperor. And opening the clothing, they saw that he was gravely wounded. And the emperor untook, took off his shirt and bandaged it and still bloody and he had to rinse it in the stream and do it a few times. And then they carried the wounded man into the cottage. And as he opened his eyes, um, got a drink of water, and then he closed his eyes again, he was in great shock. And what to do? They had to care for the man, so they did all night long as he slept. And then in the morning, close to the morning, they slept themselves. Finally, the sun was bright, the emperor opened his eyes, and the man who was wounded woke up and looked at the emperor and said, Please, forgive me. What have I done that I should have to forgive you? The emperor asked. Oh, you don't know me, your majesty, but many years ago, um, you, by one of your decrees, took away all the property from my family. And so I vowed that I would kill you, and I heard you were coming to this mountain to meet the hermit, and I waited, knowing you were alone, and I was going to surprise you. But it took such a long time, you climbed up there and you never walked down. And there was no sign, so I left my ambush and I started to look for you, and then your guards came across me and pulled their swords, and that was the wound. Fortunately, I ran here, for if I hadn't met you, I surely would have died. And instead of 
my being able to kill you, you save my life. I'm ashamed and grateful beyond words. And if I live, I vow to be your servant and will bid my children and grandchildren to honor your name. Now the emperor was overjoyed to be reconciled with his former enemy. He forgave the man, gave the property back, had his own doctor take care of him. And after the attendants were ordered to do this, then the emperor went back to the hermit and said, before I take my leave, I must ask again the three questions. The hermit stood up from sowing the seeds in the garden and said, but your questions have already been answered. How's that? The emperor asked. Yesterday, if you had not taken pity on my age and given me a hand with digging these beds, you would have been attacked by that man on your way home and killed. Then you would have deeply regretted not staying with me. (laughs) Therefore, the most important time was the time you were digging in the garden. The most important person was myself. And the most important pursuit was to do what was helpful right there where you were. Later, when the wounded man came here, the most important time was the time you spent dressing his wounds. For if you'd not cared for him, he would have died and you would have lost the chance for reconciliation. Likewise, he was the most important person. And the most important pursuit was taking care of his happiness and your own. Remember that there is only one important time, which is now. The present moment is the only time over which we have dominion. And the most important person is always the one with whom you are, who is right before you. For who knows if you'll have dealings with that or any other person in the future. And the most important pursuit is bringing happiness to that person and yourself. For that alone, a deep and true happiness, is the genuine purpose of life. End of Leo Tolstoy, bedtime story. And what it speaks of, what it points to in this practice of awareness, is not a philosophy, but the invitation or the instructions to live more and more in the reality of the present. Because we know it, we know how we can go for a walk, you know, on Mount Tamalpais or on Muir Beach by the ocean or someplace in our neighborhood in this beautiful spring weather and there, you know, the plum trees are in blossom or the crab apple trees have their blossoms on. And we're so busy walking and thinking about taxes, isn't that right? Pretty soon, the 15th. And we're thinking about, you know, what happened yesterday and what we're going to do a few days from now and all these great plans and ideas and things that irritated us and so forth that we don't see the plum blossoms or the crab apple or the people's faces as they pass by. And it's as if we lose that day. We lose that part of our life because we're not actually present for it. So the foundations of mindfulness are an invitation or an instruction to begin establishing this awareness first just where we are. There's awareness of body, of the senses, of form. And we begin, as we did tonight in meditation, being aware of the breath, 
as that text from the Buddha says, one sits down quietly and is aware this is a long breath or a short breath, a deep or a shallow breath, without trying to change it or make it some other way, can we actually be aware of the rhythms of life as they change themselves? Because that's where freedom lies. To be aware as if it were the first or the last breath. Because you never know. One of them will be. And even 10 minutes of being aware of the breath can have an amazing effect. There you are completely caught in something. Some story, some fear, some anger, some distress. He did and she did. You know those moments, those days? And you sit down and you feel your body breathing. And in 10 minutes, all of a sudden, it's like, wow, really caught in that one, wasn't I? It's as if the breath leads to that moment of freedom, that simply and that directly. It also does it with the pains and pleasures because we're so used to grasping what's pleasant and being afraid of pain. If you're afraid of pain, you have a lot of trouble, you know, because in this human life you get pleasure and pain. Anybody not have that? Raise your hand. Okay. So that means that we can't be here a lot of the time if there's things that we're afraid of, whether it's pain or fear or loneliness. So instead, with mindfulness, again, as if one could bow to it, oh, here's the pleasures, and here's the pain. But pain is a word. What's the direct experiences? Discomfort, throbbing, tingling, itching, fire, so forth. When you actually become interested in life through awareness, then even the difficult things become workable. And sometimes the pain is really a call for healing. It says, please listen to me, give me some attention, because in this, healing is possible. Instead of running away. Alice Miller, whose life work is about paying attention to our authentic experience, writes passionately about the body. The truth about our childhood and the way we live our life is stored up in our body. And although we can repress it, we can never alter it. Our intellect can be deceived, our feelings manipulated, our conceptions confused, and our body tricked with medication. But someday, our body will present its bill, for it is as incorruptible as a child who still whole in spirit will accept no compromises or excuses, and it will not stop tormenting us until we stop evading the truth that it presents to us. There's so much wisdom in this body to be learned, and the awareness that we begin, the foundation of mindfulness, is grounding ourselves in this breath, in the sensations, in the reality of this physical life. Remember the story of the little girl whose mother was a art professor in the university, seven years old. Her mother was going off to work and she said, Mommy, what do you do at work? Well, I work at the university and I teach people how to draw, said her mother. And the little seven-year-old looked up rather incredulously and said, You mean they forget? And we forget, we forget about this 
body itself, what it's like to walk. Remember as a child the pleasure of walking on the earth, to eat a piece of fruit, to hear with the ears, with a real attention. And so the awareness of body is this invitation for healing, for respect, for delight, for freedom in the midst of pain and freedom in the midst of pleasure. Robert Aiken Roshi, who's a senior Western Zen master now in his 80s, came to a teacher meeting, a council that Spirit Rock sponsored some years ago, about five years ago, and gave some of the last of his teachings before he retired. And because he was a Rinzai Zen master, they work with koans, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping and all of those things. And so we were sitting and he was telling some of his life story, starting in a prisoner of war camp in the Second World War, meeting an expert on Zen and so forth. And as he was finishing up, I raised my hand because I'm not the shy type, as you know. And I said, Roshi, before you retire, you've taught koans all your life, would you tell us one koan and its answer? (laughs) And he said, I will, before I finish. So he finished all this beautiful lecture, and he said, now I'll tell you the koan. It was given to me by Nyogen Senzaki, who was one of the first Japanese teachers in America, in New York, in 1952. I went to visit Nyogen Senzaki at his apartment and was learning Zen from him. And by the door, on a table, was this beautiful pottery bowl that had a spiral in it from the center all the way out to the rim. And the first koan that Senzaki gave me to answer, he held this bowl up to me and he said, what I want to know from you is does the spiral go from the outside in or does it go from the inside out? Anybody have an answer? Hmm? Yeah? Yes, someone said. Both? Any other answers? Doesn't go anywhere? Too much thinking. (laughs) He said, here is the answer. And he stood up. He'd been sitting there for more than an hour. And he's kind of tall and he's a little frail. So he was a little shaky as he stood up from the place where he was sitting. But he did it. He managed to stand. And then he put his arms out and he became the bowl. No words. He became the bowl. And then he turned one way, spiraling in and stopped. And then he turned the other way, spiraling out and turned back and just stood there as the bowl that had every possibility. And then he sat back down. That was the answer. And in his talk, it really came out of his talk, because his talk in part was about intimacy. You know, all the personal ads in the Pacific Sun, things like that. Well, it's not exactly that, although it's related. Mindfulness itself is the intimacy 
with pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and the life of the body and a growing capacity to bring tenderness and compassion to this body and these experiences that we have. That's intimacy. Then the invitation of mindfulness moves from the body to feelings, and the Buddha goes on. Now, to awaken, also pay attention to the life of feelings, pleasant feelings, neutral feelings, unpleasant feelings. It's an amazing thing that we feel. It's just phenomenal. You know, and there's always feelings. Sometimes people will say, I don't feel anything at all on retreat. And I'll say, well, close your eyes and go inside and tell me what you feel. And they say, nothing. I say, okay, that's a feeling. Maybe it's numb. Maybe it's deadness. Maybe it's silence. Usually when people feel, it's because they were taught not to feel for a long time. And they've learned how to successfully do it. But it's always there underneath. And it doesn't take very long being quiet before feeling raises its head and looks around and gets angry or bored or frightened, or whatever. The amazing thing is that like the weather, it's always happening. Pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant. And to become aware of feelings is to become aware of that enormous aspect of human life, which is our heart. How we connect with one another, how we move through this world, is guided by that. Feelings want one simple thing. They want acceptance. And if we don't accept them, do you know what happens? They keep coming back. And you grieve or you weep or you long, and it keeps coming over and over with its story until finally you say, okay, yes, I accept that this is how I also feel. Wallace Stevens, the poet, I don't ask for the full ringing of the bell. I don't ask for a clap of thunder that would rent the veil in the temple. A scrawny cry will do from far off among the willows and cattails, from far off there among the galaxies. And so to be aware of the feelings in the feelings, as the Buddha suggests, is to notice that in each moment there's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feelings, and then all these elaborations I have this list that I read sometimes on retreat, 500 feelings, joyful and sorrowful and sad and sanguine and silly and sublime and strung out and stubborn and confused and clear and centered and calm and crabby and concerned and conceited and conciliatory, and it just goes on and on. It's phenomenal. Often we're out of touch with the feelings that we have, There's a kind of pain that comes to us um, that then causes us to shut down, to not feel, to be lost or confused. And so just as one embraces the life of the body with awareness, not to be stuck in it, but to respect it and find a freedom in the middle of it, a wisdom so one also reclaims the capacity to feel and through this aliveness learns a freedom. So you notice which feelings are present and which ones you get caught in and which ones carry you away. How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, 
compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong. Because someday in life, you will have been all of these. That's George Washington Carver. And so you notice the weather, what the different feelings are. And if you have thoughts that keep coming in over and over and over and again when you meditate, it's probably because there's some feeling there. You're planning and planning and planning. You're probably anxious. You're remembering and remembering. Maybe there's grief that hasn't been felt. Or maybe there's some love that needs to be acknowledged. You're imagining and imagining. Maybe there's this great creativity that wants to spring out of you. Underneath all those repetitions is the feelings of the heart. The idea (coughs) in being aware of feelings is not to change them. People come and meditate, and what they encounter, because we're so wounded, many of us, is the whole, is the loneliness, is the need, you know, is the fear, is the grief. Think, well, if I meditate right, I can get rid of that. But with mindfulness, one of three things happen as you pay attention. Either it will go away, or it will stay the same, or it will get worse, right? And that's not your job. Your job is to make the space that says, let me understand all the feelings of being human. Like um, Maury. You know that book, Tuesdays with Maury? Maury Schwartz or whatever his name was. Was that his name? Yeah. Professor at Brandeis. I think I went to his class once, actually. Give a talk. So he was dying of Lou Gehrig's disease and becoming less and less able to do anything. And he was lying there giving his last wisdom to this student, recounted in the book. And he says, finally, things have gotten very intense, so I'm detaching myself, you know, like the Buddhists teach. And the student there said, what do you mean detaching yourself? I thought you were always talking about experiencing life, all the good emotions, all the bad ones. What do you mean? He said, oh, detachment doesn't mean you don't let the experience penetrate you. On the contrary, you let it penetrate you fully. That's how you are able to be free with it. Take any emotion, love for a woman or grief for a loved one or what I'm going through, fear and pain from this deadly illness. If you hold back on the emotions, if you don't allow yourself to go all the way through them, You can never get to freedom or detachment. You're too busy being afraid. You're afraid of the pain. You're afraid of the grief. You're afraid of the vulnerability that loving entails. (coughs) But by throwing yourself into these emotions, by allowing yourself to dive in all the way over your head, you experience them fully and completely. You know what pain is. You know what love is. You know what grief is. And only then can you say, all right, I've experienced this emotion. I recognize it for what it is. And now I'm free in the midst of that emotion. I know you think I'm talking about dying, but it's what I've been telling you all along. When you learn how to die, you learn how to live. So it's that way of being present and learning a trust that we can live in the reality of the present with all these feelings doesn't mean you act on them all. Mercy, help, 
don't do that, but that you can feel them and not be so afraid. And then wisdom comes and says, this one needs response. This one just needs my tears or my, my understanding. You feel your pain and discover that it's not your pain, but it's the pain. It's the pain of being alive. You feel your joy and you discover it's not your joy, but it's the joy of life recreating itself. And you live more and more in the reality of the present. As it says in the Tao Te Ching, if you open yourself to the Tao, you are at one with the Tao. You can embody it completely. If you open yourself to loss, you are at one with loss. You can accept it completely. If you open yourself to insight, you are at one with insight. You can use it completely. Open yourself to the Tao, then trust your natural responses and everything will fall into place. It's by being open that then the heart knows what needs a true response when we're not so frightened. And there comes this still point, this space of awareness that knows the life of the heart, all the feelings, and knows also of freedom in the midst of them all. The same goes on to the mindfulness or awareness of mind. I mean, minds are phenomenal too, amazing. They are, among other things, the thought factory, right? That secrete endless thoughts or manufacture them like pasta in all different shapes, but it's one substance, basically. Amazing images and pictures and words. Castaneda said in his writings from Don Juan, Don Juan speaking to Carlos, you talk to yourself too much. (laughs) You're not unique in that. Every one of us does. We maintain our world with our inner dialogue. A man or woman of knowledge is aware that the world will change completely as soon as they stop talking to themselves. We have so many stories. And one of my teachers, Ajahn Buddhadasa, his main commentary, when asked about the modern world, he summed it up in three words, lost in thought. So this is the mind that creates stories and pictures and beliefs. And as Rabindranath Tagore, the sage, said, most people believe the mind to be a mirror more or less accurately reflecting the world outside of them, not realizing, on the contrary, the fact that the mind itself is the principal element of creation. Or as Mark Twain put it, I like to use this probably every other Dharma talk, where he says, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. (laughs) So what we do with mindfulness is we observe the mind with the mind. And maybe an image that you need in the beginning is from the Odyssey, Remember when Ulysses, went, his ship went near the sirens, what he had to do? He had all the sailors, you know, plug their ears up, but he wanted to hear the sirens. Oh, Ulysses wanted everything, right? Got him in a lot of trouble, but what a great story, right? 
So since he wanted, he left his ears open, he had them tie him to the mast. Remember that. And in some way, because the mind is so seductive and it has no pride and it will do anything, right? What one needs to do is establish a center place which can look at the stories, feel the stories as they pass, get the emotions, get the pictures and the images and so forth, but not get completely lost in them. To make a bigger space, to name them, oh, there's planning, there's remembering again, oh, yeah, there's a judging thought, oh, thank you for your opinion, you know, and just seeing it for the way that it is, acknowledging it. Mindfulness is the space within which these thoughts arise and pass away. And the power of mindfulness is to know the stories, to know the feelings, to know the experiences, and also to realize that that's not who we are. It's only a little part of us. And most of our stories are pretty small, actually. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, put it this way. He said, about this mind, if you look directly, what is this mind? In truth, it isn't anything that you can grasp or name. It's just a phenomena of nature. Within itself, it's naturally peaceful. That your mind isn't peaceful is because it follows its stories and moods. It believes them. The real essence of mind doesn't have anything to it. It's open and peaceful. But it becomes agitated because moods and stories deceive it. They trick it into happiness and suffering and gladness and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. The untrained mind gets lost and follows each of these and believes it and goes down so many roadways and so many dead ends. What our practice is, is to become aware of the mind like the wind through the leaves. We see the leaves flutter without responding or reacting or getting caught up in them. To know the nature of the mind through direct experience, the stillness that is our true nature and the impressions that move through catching us up. Our practice is to see this true nature of mind and to train ourselves not to get lost in all that comes through, to allow ourselves to rest in the natural peace. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Body, feelings, mind. How many stories do we tell ourselves and get lost in? And again, Sharon Salzberg, she said, teaching meditation is so simple. Just say, were you aware of that? That was a phenomenal story. That was a great story. That was a wonderful story. It was a terrible story. That was a tragic story. It was a story. Next, there's a breath, a sound, the person in front of us, living more in the reality of the present because thought is a wonderful servant and a terrible master. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is awareness of the Dharma, which means the laws that govern life, the way things actually work. One becomes aware of expansion and contraction, of grasping and the suffering it makes, 
of letting go and the freedom that's invited through it, of joy and peace that are naturally there, of the entanglements of the mind when they arise, not judging them, because when desire or judgment comes, oh, I shouldn't be judging so much. Stop feeling that. What is that? It's more judgment, right? It doesn't lead to freedom. Instead, mindfulness is the space that bows to what arises and said, oh, here we are again. This one too. As Ramdas said, a connoisseur of your neurosis. There's another good one. Krishnamurti put it this way. He said, it is the truth that liberates and not your efforts to be free. For the heart to be free, for the mind to be free. It's not that you have to change yourself into some other person, some different personality, some different body, some different feelings. It's to know the nature of this life and find the freedom in the midst of it. To see what is so. And when we pay attention from this still point in the present, what we see is that everything is always changing. That who we are and who life is is never the same for one moment to the next. You know, you can't step into the same river twice. You also can't meet the same person twice. If you think that's the person you met yesterday, it's already kind of dead. Look into their eyes, feel their energy this moment. It's different and so are you. So we begin to see that all things are changing and that they're not possessable. (coughs) We see the habit patterns that make this body of fear the small self. A bear paced up and down the 20-foot length of his cage. When, after 10 years, the cage was removed, the bear continued to pace up and down those 20 feet as if the cage were still there. You understand how easy our patterns are to get locked into. But when we pay attention, it turns out it's all full of holes. It's empty. You look at thoughts and the story seems so real. She did it or he did it and I'm going to... But you look and it's actually ephemeral. Feelings, they seem so important. We're so sad or happy or excited. They're lovely. What about tomorrow? The feelings change. There's a new one. They're gone, dissolve like clouds. All things are that way. Again, from the Buddha. says, suppose a man or woman who was not blind beheld the many bubbles on the Ganges River as they floated along and watched them and carefully examined them. And after carefully examining, they would appear empty, unreal, insubstantial. In exactly the same way does the practitioner behold all the physical experiences of the body, the feelings and emotions, the perceptions and thoughts and states of consciousness, past, present, and future, all arising just now. And watching them and carefully examining them, after this examination, they too, like bubbles, appear empty, void, ungraspable, without a self. Now, some people think that's a problem, but it's wonderful. It's not like you become more selfless and you're some different person. It's simply less fear 
and less contraction. Because we see that our identity today is our identity today, and it shifts all the time. It's like the person who asked the question, what do you do? And the wise person who answered said, when? (laughs) Because each time is different. And I remember first speaking with Ramdas after he had his very severe stroke, and after a year of rehabilitation, when he did his first bit of teaching, which he's now doing regularly some teaching, even though he speaks very slowly, so forth. And the first time he did it, it was quite hard. He went into some um, retreat or workshop and talked a little about what happened to him, very hesitatingly. And he went back home and I called him, I was talking to him, and I said, Ramdas, how was it beginning to teach again? And he said, oh, it was really difficult. And I said, why was that, thinking it would be the pain in his body or the difficulty finding words? And he says, no, he said, because they want me to be Ramdas and I'm not him anymore. I'm this man in a disabled body. If we can't let go day to day with our children, our lovers, our work, to be fresh, to live like that emperor said, in the reality of the present, we will never find freedom because it's nowhere else but here in each moment. And mindfulness is the invitation or the training or more than that, it's the natural capacity to be just here in the eternal present where we are without clinging or grasping. And it's joyful and wonderful And with not clinging, the only thing that comes quite naturally is happiness and compassion. Because when we don't grasp, we're free. And then you see like a child that falls down in the street. What do you do? You help them up. Or you see someone who's hungry and you understand hunger. Say, here, let us eat. Because it's us. It's not me, but it's us. To rest in the moment allows us to look at one another and see that which Thomas Merton called the secret beauty of their hearts, the eyes of the beloved. So meditation isn't to have some particular experience. You know, you have all these different experiences in meditation, so what? And they come and some of them are big and some are small and some are pleasant and some are unpleasant. You know, and Sharon Salzberg would say, were you mindful of that? Did you notice that it came and did a dance and passed away? It's not the content, but it's this deeper and deeper capacity to be present and compassionate and alive and free, to live the life of the Buddha, which is your birthright. A poem by Lisa Cullen called Reasons to Meditate. To practice noticing to understand simple things, to give myself clarity, to face inevitable difficulties, to make conscious choices, to welcome my feelings, to know pain, to experience the bliss of effort, to take gentle possession of my mind, to free the mind, to be aware of my sensitivity, 
to dip below superficiality, to brighten my eyes, to forget how I look, to stop moving, to let myself be just how I am, to love deeply, to risk being myself, to sit upright like a pyramid, to stay still and breathe the air, to encourage a positive habit, to behave in the manner of one who woke up, to pursue freedom, to touch the earth, to learn without words, to unlock my heart, to go beyond. In this invitation of awareness, it is the invitation to discover the heart's capacity to be with all things, with compassion and ease and freedom. It is possible. And the Buddha said if you practice it in this text for seven years or seven months or even seven days, sincerely and fully, understanding, awakening, freedom will come to you. You can see if it's so. That's what it says. Try it for yourself. So let's sit for a moment. Can you notice just what is here now? There's a humility to mindfulness and a tenderness to accept the sorrows and the beauty equally, to rest in the midst of them all. In a minute or two, um, I'd like us to end with a a chant, a loving-kindness chant for a couple of people who 
our friends of those sitting here tonight who've died in the past two weeks, um, for the people in Kosovo and Macedonia and Serbia and Bosnia and Burundi and Rwanda and California and Afghanistan and then New York, many places. Sometimes we do a little bit of questions at the end, but I think tonight that the talk is enough, enough words. A um, couple of simple announcements. It's starting to be um, lighter when we come, which is lovely, the spring light. Please drive carefully as you leave. Make sure to turn right and don't park along Sir Francis Drake Boulevard. We promise to be very safe and not to do that, but to have cars come in here. Um, Next week, um, my very dear friend, uh, this um, American abbot, Ajahn Sumedho, who's one of the senior Buddhist teachers of all Westerners, will be here leading a retreat at the retreat center, and he's going to come and do Monday night. I will introduce him and maybe do some of the speaking as well. And he's a very earthy and straightforward and um, wonderful teacher, so I'm, I'm glad to be having him um, come for Monday night. He's quite special and uh, very respected. And when we were in Dharamsala at the teachers' meetings with the Dalai Lama, we've had a few of. Ajahn Sumedho came, uh, it was about four years ago to the last of those meetings. And there was some conflict among the Lamas and teachers, Eastern and Western, about certain things. Um, And in the middle of the conflict, Ajahn Sumedho kind of spoke up, and he's this great big guy. He's now he's kind of in his mid-60s, and he wears his robes with a great deal of dignity, but also in kind of ease. And, and he said, yeah, you know, we've had difficulties like this between the lamas and the teachers of Eastern and Western. We've had these in our monastery for years. And he started to laugh about it and told this funny story. He said, but then we realized it really wasn't very wise. We were all attached to our views and opinions. And he was laughing a little bit more. He said, just like everybody in this room. And everybody started to laugh, even the Dalai Lama, because he did it so well. And after he spoke, just quite simply and honestly, then the Lama, who was uh, together with myself, kind of helping to um, moderate the meetings, I was sort of doing it for the room and the Westerners, but this Lama was inviting other Asian meditation masters to speak. He changed, but he'd, he'd been speaking about only Western meditation teachers. And he looked up and he said, well, there are apparently Western meditation masters as well as Western meditation teachers, so we will respect them as well. And I think it was because of just Ajahn Sumedho's presence that they realized, oh, he's one of us. Um, So he's a lovely person, and I'm glad he'll be coming. Um, So the chant is this. It's one of the common chants, uh, blessing chants of loving-kindness. And it goes, sabe, which means all, sata, which is beings, all creatures, all that breathe, all that's alive, sukito, um, be truly happy. And that's the happiness of freedom and compassion and liberation. So we'll chant it for a little bit. And as we do, you can um, direct the intentions of the heart to bless or bring... Uh, the spirit of loving compassion 
to anyone that comes into your mind. Sabe sata sukito all beings. Sabe sata sukito far and near. Sabe sata sukito loved ones. Sabe sata sukito those being born. Sabe sata sukito and those who have died. Sabe sata sukito and those in the middle. Sabe sata sukito creatures of the skies. Sabe sata sukito animals of the earth. Sabe sata sukito fishes of the waters. Sabe sata sukito all human beings. Sabe sata sukito those in pain. Sabe sata sukito and those causing pain. Sabe sata sukito those in happiness. Sabe sata sukito those causing happiness. Sabe sata sukito those far away. Sabe sata sukito those just around us. Sata sukito add harmony. Sabe sata sukito. Sabe sata sukito. Sabe sata sukito to those in Kosovo. Sabe sata sukito to all in distress. Sabe sata sukito three more times. Sabe sata sukito. Sabe sata sukito. Sabe sata sukito. May you rest in the only time there is, which is now, with awareness and compassion over these weeks ahead. May you find an inner peace and freedom, the reality of the present. Thank you. Good night. See you again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.